Welcome to this episode of the Education Revolution Podcast. In this episode, Jerry tells stories from his childhood that influenced who he is today. The COVID era has many of us in a state of contemplation. And it's been very interesting to me to think about the freedom that I had as a child compared to the freedom of this century. But maybe COVID is unwittingly changing some of that. Actually, COVID is witless. I now see more children playing outside, riding their bikes. Uh, My earliest memory was sitting in a baby walker next to a gigantic refrigerator. I must have been between one and two. My mother told me my first word was flaufer. (laughs) To show you how different things were in those days, I remember getting lost just a block away from my house. I must have been between two and three. A neighbor recognized me and brought me home. Apparently, nobody thought it was a big deal. Also, when I was about three, I could identify classical music such as Prokofiev's A Love of Three Oranges and Classical Symphony, etc. About that age, my parents somehow allowed me to be studied by psychology students at Clark University. I remember them being very surprised when I made a joke about looking through their one-way window being a pain. I also loved digging in the dirt for treasure. The treasure I found was a bunch of little green beads, probably from some discarded 10-cent necklace. If you believe modern theories of biology, I suppose that that digging could be why I was never allergic to anything. When I was four or five, I remember that the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, came to town and they would march up my little street, Longfellow Road, with elephants and other animals and performers walking up the hill and down the other side across Chandler Street to the open field on the other side. I followed them there, at four or five, and watched them set up a giant tent in that field. The Blackstone Canal used to run through it, and it was now covered over. I found out later that it was a 45-mile-long canal that went from Worcester to Providence, Rhode Island. It was a boon to Worcester merchants from 1828 to when it, uh, when it was built to 1835, when that new technology, the train, replaced it. It closed in 1848, but the remnants of the canal were still there when I was five years old in 1948. So sad that children don't get to experience the circus anymore. Animal abuse issues notwithstanding, alternatives could have been found. I remember a sad moment about that time. There used to be a trolley system in Worcester, but it ended December 31st, 1945. I must have had a memory of being on a trolley because I clearly remember how sad I was sitting on June Street as I watched them take up the trolley tracks. I suppose it was a year or two later, so I wouldn't have been more than five years old. The backstory on this is that General Motors snuck people onto the boards of city transit companies to promote their buses. They got cities to end their trolley services. Every city used to have them. 
Eventually, they were caught and paid a fine for doing this, but the damage was done. Trolley service in most cities was over. Even at five, I knew this was wrong. One of the fun things our family used to do was go to the Paxton Navy Yard, a mini railroad. We used to go there a few times a year, and I loved riding the trains. I know it is closed now, but I don't know when it closed. That's probably where I got my love of trains. I've taken most of the trains in the United States, many in England, including one from London to Loch Ness in northern Scotland, many across Europe, including one across Europe to Moscow, Russia, and then another to the Urals. Sometimes my cousin Judy would babysit for us. She was about 10 years older, the daughter of my aunt Nessie, one of my father's older sisters. Nessie was the black sheep of her family, but I really liked her, maybe because she was a rebel and very outspoken. My father was the second youngest of nine surviving siblings. Sometimes I would visit my bubby, my mother's father. She didn't really speak English. She and her husband had emigrated from Lithuania, but my father's father died when my father was only seven, so of course I never knew him. My father's younger sister, Janet, had a daughter, Rachel, and I remember carrying her around Bubby's house when she was a baby. I remember stopping at Bubby's house on my way to Hebrew school, which I hated. It was in a conservative synagogue, and they didn't seem to care if I understood anything as long as I could mouth the Hebrew and sing the music. In fact, you had to wear a yarmulke or hat there. I used to wear a baseball hat with a big visor and fall asleep. Then I had to walk home when it was over, and it was already dark. My father used to tell me stories about when he was a kid and the siblings worked to keep the house going. One story he told me was when he and his friends stole some eggs from a store. The owner stopped them, went up, and banged on their pockets, breaking the eggs inside. That was it. He didn't say a word. (laughs) Another story he told was how his friends used to bet on everything. One day he went early to the corner where they met. He found he could easily leapfrog over the mailbox. When his friends got there, he pretended he couldn't jump over it. I bet you can't jump over it, they said. Then he smoothly jumped over and won the bet. (laughs) Just a few blocks from my house was Newton Square. On the far side of Newton Square, there was a recreation center with tennis and basketball courts. I used to go down there to watch people play. A few years later, I played tennis there, but when I was about five or six, I wandered down there to watch a really good kid who played basketball for Holy Cross College from 1946 to 1949. His name was Bob Cousy. My father must have told me. Cousy would practice with his friends at the outdoor court at Newton Hill. I knew even then he was very good. He went on to a career with the Boston Celtics and I would listen to Holy Cross and Celtics games religiously on the radio. I remember that when I was about 10, my father brought me to see the Celtics play the Knicks at Worcester Auditorium. The Celtics won in overtime 114 to 112. Some still consider Cousy one of the greatest players who ever lived. As I write this, he's still alive 
at 92. Sometimes I, I, sometimes I would climb to the top of Newton Hill, behind the recreation area, one of the seven hills Worcester was built on, like Rome. It was a little scary because of the stories I had heard, like Indians on the hill and a strange underground chamber at the top. But I climbed it anyway, and sure enough, there was a chimney sticking out of the ground at the top. I never did, I never did find out what that was for. From the time I was very young, I used to go to classical music concerts with my mother, mostly chamber music. She was a concert pianist when she was in her teens and went on to teach piano to thousands. When I was about five or six, I remember going to a chamber music concert of the Juilliard String Quartet and correctly identifying the Ravel String Quartet. The violist and founding member was my mother's friend, Raphael Hillier. My mother introduced me to him. She knew many musicians from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, where he had previously played. Hillier lived to be 96, died in 2010, and the Juilliard String Quartet is still performing. Before he, she started playing the piano, my mother played the violin. When she was 10 years old, she played duets with a 10-year-old Mike Wallace, who later became famous on television. One of his first jobs was as a game show host on a local Boston station. As a youngster, I remember watching as she talked to him by phone in my house. Somehow, she won a watch. Of course, later, he was a famous hard-hitting interviewer for 60 Minutes for decades. He worked into his 90s. When she was in her 80s, I got my mother to write a book about her life in music and growing up with Leonard Bernstein who took lessons from the same teacher as she did. One day, I had a meeting about organizing a fundraising event that was at CBS Studios in Manhattan. I had a copy of my mother's book with me. When I mentioned that my mother knew Mike Wallace, who had endorsed the book, she, they said, Oh, why don't you say hello to him? He's in the office over there, motioning to the corner. Hesitantly, I went into the office and... There he was, in the flesh, sitting at his desk. I had never seen him except on television. I introduced myself and handed him my copy of my mother's book. It was one of the most surreal experiences I ever had. It was like handing the book through the TV screen. Another person I met through my mother's music group was Bedrick Vashka. He had a hunchback and a cleft palate, but he was a fantastic cellist. When I met him, he was quite old. In fact, he had studied with Antonin Dvorak, the famous composer and cellist who had died in 1904. He came from Czechoslovakia. Once, when I was a teen, I went to a concert at my local high school by a newly arrived young Czech quartet. When we, backstage, when we went backstage afterwards, and we always did, and talked to them in the little English they knew, they were flabbergasted to learn that Vashka was still alive. It turns out that Vashka had been a pioneer in chamber music there. They said it was like hearing that Beethoven was still alive. 
I remember very little from school when I was young, which tells you a lot. But one incident I do remember was when I was curious about this red box in the school. There was a little swinging weight above it, so I thought I would see what it would do. I picked up the weight, and it went down. And it broke the glass beneath it. Suddenly, the fire alarm went off. I didn't get the connection at first. But then there was frantic activity at the school. One of the teachers saw me standing there, a bit stunned, and took me to the principal's office, Miss Clover G. Knowlton. She was a kindly lady and soon realized that I hadn't known what I was doing. That was the end of that, but it was one of the few things I do remember from that school. One thing I do know is I don't remember anyone driving me anywhere during weekdays. My mother didn't drive and my father drove to work, so I walked everywhere by myself, including walking about a mile to Midland Street School when I was in kindergarten on up. It didn't matter if it was hot, cold, raining, or snowing. On snow days, we, sl- we sledded down the hill on Lock- Longfellow Road. I remember that song, Let It Snow, from back then. It was a hit in 1946. When I was under six, there were no TVs in our community, and I used to listen to a lot of radio. Some of the shows I remember, Bobby Benson and the B-Bar-B Ranch, Straight Arrow, The Shadow, Candid Microphone, The Lone Ranger, Dr. Kildare, and Gene Hersholt as Dr. Christian, and of course, the Boston Red Sox. Actually, I never learned to swim until I was seven. The reason is that every summer my family would go to Onset on Cape Cod. I was so afraid of the jellyfish in the ocean that I would go to the I wouldn't go to the beach. Instead, I would stay back at the summer bungalow and listen to Red Sox games. Then I would wander over to the town center and go to the Penny Arcade. One thing I remember you could do with pennies is turn a crank and look at the flip cards as they made moving images. I thought that was amazing. My cousins Steffi and Susan Shapiro would come to visit with their parents, my mother's sister Josie and her husband Uncle Dave, and my mother's oldest sister Hester with her husband Uncle Maury. When I was five or six years old, we were very friendly with the Smith family, two doors down on Longfellow Road. The parents were Joe and Rose, and their daughters were Arlene and Beverly. Arlene, the older one and about my age, was one of my best friends. The Smith family was the first on our block to get a TV set. So, all the children in the neighborhood would pile into the Smith house every day to watch the Howdy Doody show and Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. It ran from 1947 to 1957 and was completely ad-libbed. Fran was Fran Allison, the only human and well-known comedian at the time on the radio. It had one puppeteer and many puppets, such as Beulah Witch and Fletcher Rabbit. Howdy Doody ran from 1947 to 1960 with human Buffalo Bob Smith 
and Clarabelle the Clown, played by Bob Keeshan, who later became Captain Kangaroo. My mother's parents lived in Boston, my nana and grandpa. We used to visit them every week, and sometimes they would come stay with us. My grandmother, born Lucy Romberg, was born in Kharkov, Ukraine. Her father was a, prosperous, uh, was a prosperous beer maker, and the family lived a good life until the Tsar kicked all the Jews out in the late 1800s. Amazingly, I have my grandfather's violin, my great-grandfather's violin, by the way, my great-grandfather's violin. The family fled and made their way to the United States. My grandmother didn't speak any English when she arrived, but learned English so well that she became an actress and speech teacher. Before she married my grandfather, she lived in New York City and met all kinds of people, including Juliet Thompson. She was a key person, Juliet Thompson, who arranged for a visit into the United States by Abdal Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, founder of the Baha'i religion. When I mentioned that to Baha'is, they are in awe. To them, it was like knowing one of Christ's apostles. I remember that Nana used to write, recite poetry and comic routines that she had memorized. But the greatest influence on my life was my grandpa, William Blatt. He was the son of an alcoholic, but became a respected judge and lawyer. But his first love was the spoken word, and he was such an expert on Shakespeare that he wrote a drama called After the Curtain Falls, extra acts of Shakespearean plays written in iambic pentameter. It was performed all around Europe. He also wrote books of epigrams that were published. Some of them used to appear above the headline in the Boston Daily Papers. When I was a bit older, I remember sitting around the dining table at my house as we went over his epigrams to decide which should go in his books. But his biggest influence on me was much simpler. When we would visit him in Boston, he'd sit down with me and say, what do you want to learn? He would give me choices like science, history, and literature, including fiction. I remember not wanting to hear about fiction because it wasn't true. <laughs> so, starting about six or seven, I remember learning about theories of humor, the causes of World War II, the ego, the id, and superego in psychology, and the difference between atheism and agnosticism. He was not religious, but he was proud of being Jewish. He said he was an agnostic because atheists would have to prove there is no God, which is impossible. To me, this approach to learning made a lot of sense, and I loved it. When I discovered that school didn't work the same way, this led me toward my lifelong quest to reform education. At about that age, I started planting a garden next to my house. I remember tending it and being so happy when it produced something to eat. I still have a garden and love working in it. Also, at about the same age, I cleaned out a former coal storage room in our basement, made a little club, and began to publish a house newsletter, The Mint's Daily Gab. I made three or four copies by carbon paper. 
I remember one illustration I made was of a Ted Williams home run creating an eclipse as it passed the sun. A great fear in those days was polio. It was crippling and killing a lot of people, including a lot of children. I remember that in the summer we didn't dare go to the public swimming pool for fear of contracting polio. We were also afraid of atomic war. I used to have nightmares about that. My parents really didn't smoke, although my father sometimes smoked a pipe or cigar, but they would leave some cigarettes in a bowl for guests. When I was seven, I sometimes used to steal them and sneak out to the burning barrel behind the garage, light them, and puff on them. One day, my parents caught me. They thought it was the funniest thing they ever saw. Well, that was it. It wasn't worth it. I never smoked again. <laughs> when I was six or seven, my parents sent me to a Jewish day camp called Pack a Lunch. They needed a camp song, and I wrote one. I still remember the beginning words and music. We salute the campers that go to Pack a Lunch. We sing and we dance, and we're such a happy bunch. We salute the campers that go to pack a lunch. We sing and we dance and we're such a happy bunch and so on. <laughs> I guess they, they used that for publicity and there was a story about it in the newspaper. One of my counselors was Richard Talamo, whose father was a lawyer. He lived at the top of my street. Later that year, he gave me his stamp collection. I used to work on it off and on, mounting the loose stamps. Every once in a while, it seems to pop up in my house. I suppose it might be worth quite a bit by now. One thing I used to do when I was seven or eight is climb to the top of our garage and others. Then I would jump off the low part of the garages. I remember my mother wasn't very happy about that, but I never did hurt myself. I used to cut through several yards from June Street to get to my house. But one day... When I was about that age, a neighborhood bully from down the street whose father was a judge stopped me in the middle of one of the yards and beat me up. He was Irish. It got me really mad, and I determined to learn how to defend myself. I used to watch boxing on television and study their techniques. Then I would practice by hitting big pillows. Sometimes my little brother Bill, three years younger, would hold the pillows up. After a while, I became very confident in myself, but for the next eight or nine years, nobody challenged me. My theory is that bullies are really cowards. And since I now had a lot of confidence in myself, I walked in a different way. By the way, that ended when I was in high school. I was in a lab with Tommy. My lab partner was the biggest, strongest football player on our football team. I, all, I idly told him that I wouldn't be afraid to fight anyone in the school if I had to. The next day he came in and said, So, you think you can beat anyone in the school? We're going to fight. I confidently, naively agreed. As time went on, the rumors began to fly. At that point, I was just known as a tennis player, science student, and violinist. One rumor was that my father had been a Golden Gloves champion or, and had taught me. <laughs> 
The day came to fight, and someone came down to the science room and introduced himself to me as my manager. He said, everyone's waiting in the gym. My science teacher had fashioned a tooth guard or teeth guard for me. Indeed, there were hundreds of students in the gym, but the gym teacher said we couldn't fight on school grounds. So the whole throng went across the street to an empty field. We put on gloves and helmets. They made a human ring and someone said, ding, and we started fighting. Well, if you've ever boxed, you would know that boxing is one of the most tiring sports. We swung and swung and swung. He was strong but slower than I was. I actually hit him with, hard with the left. Meanwhile, the principal heard the noise and commotion and sprinted from his office up the street to the field. He said he thought it could be a gang war. But when he got there, he laughed and broke it up. By then, we were pretty exhausted and happy to have it come to a halt. He never challenged me again, and I never got into another fight. Fifty years later, Mike, a class historian who refereed the fight 50 years earlier, wrote in our reunion yearbook, Tommy always spoke admiringly and with respect for Jerry as a praiseworthy opponent. But who can doubt the cojones of our Jerry Mintz, a quiet, bespectacled violin player who entered the ring with the fiercest guy in our class. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Education Revolution podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can always email us at jerryero at aol.com. That's J-E-R-R-Y-A-E-R-O at aol.com or call the Arrow office at 516-621-2195.